Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Guns, guns again. Guns, murders of children. I used to deal with these gun assholes um, when I was on Sirius, on Sirius Satellite Radio. They would call in from, mostly inevitably, from the South, the Southwest, and the West. That's what they would call in from. I had a guy calling from Montana who, uh, <clears throat> in order to defend his Second Amendment right, he was so outraged at what I was saying that um, he was a trucker. He said he was going to drive to New York City, find out where I lived, and kill me with his AR-15. On the air. <laughs> On the air. It was, there was a, probably there's a law against that. But, um, but I used to get people calling me up all the time, and they all have their arguments. They have the NRA arguments. They have their own arguments. I'm not going to take away from their own personal <clears throat> point of view or feelings about it. They have their own arguments, and they're tired, stupid, 
meaningless arguments, especially when you uh, look at what guns do. These arguments don't count for anything anymore. If it prevents one, one single, that's one more child from getting killed, we should dump the whole Second Amendment. Now, I should know this after all my studying and after all the decades of talking to people about this and uh, having friends who are lawyers and knowing people about who know about constitutional law. I should know whether or not you can repeal an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, have amendments to the Constitution been excised, uh, removed? I don't know. Somebody must know. Um, <clears throat> um, but we don't need the Second Amendment anymore. There's no need for it. And nobody needs to have a gun, uh, especially a certain kind of gun. Um, target practice? Who cares about target practice? Target Five million people taking target practice in the United States, millions and millions of rounds of ammunition using uh, target, you know, gun ranges, target practice. There's not none of that. All of that, I should say, all of that, all that, all those guns, all that ammunition, all the target practice is not worth one life. Not worth one life. All of it. And um, <clears throat> I mean, there's I mean, I, I could I could go into refuting all these arguments, which are pretty easy to do. And uh, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I don't know. But um, it's very difficult when you have a government that is so entirely corrupt. There was a gigantic full page ad in the New York Times the other day taken out by Bloomberg's organization called I think it's called Every Town for Gun Control. Um, and it listed every single member of Congress, um, uh, Congress people, House of Re Representatives, and Senators, every single one uh, who had taken money from the NRA, um, state represent, you know, uh, representatives from states in Congress and senators. And uh, you could see clearly there's always a concentration in certain parts of the country, and certain states like New York State is you know absent from that, but. Um, <clears throat> so you, you have hundreds of people getting money from the NRA, and it goes anywhere from you know 50000 to uh, over a million dollars for their last campaign. I don't think it's specified in there for how long the period of time it was. These people take—and the, the list was more specific than that, I should say. The list was not just a list of people who had taken money from the NRA and maybe within the last campaign— but also had not voted to fix uh, gun laws and had voted against even gun control laws in the face of mass murder, which is going on more frequently all the time. Just like if you uh, keeping track of global warming, there are clearly um, more and more and more outrageous storms and droughts uh, and all sorts of weather events like that. There are more and more frequent and larger and more atrocious mass murders by guns, usually a certain particular kind of gun, um, uh, semi-automatic weapons. Uh, the, the basic argument for these um, Second Amendment jerks is that, um, well, anyhow, what I was saying was you can't, you can't really change, and everybody's seen this before, you cannot change uh, the law uh, in most states, and certainly from the federal government, when the NRA has bribed legislators. 
Now, it's not new that the uh, that lobbying groups have bribed legislators. I can't. I don't have a chart in front of me, and I don't have a book which uh, shows me in great detail. But probably in the last, I would say, from what I've been observing and what's been reported in the papers and on TV or wherever, um, there are there is more uh, control by rich people and corporations, very rich people and corporations. More of them. Uh, are controlling more members of Congress. In other words, the, Re- the House of Representatives and the Senate represents um, less of the real uh, will of the American people. Every time you take, uh, every time you look at an issue like immigrants, or um, or abortion, or gun control, or anything like that, and if you take a nationwide poll, you find out that uh, anywhere from fifty-five to seventy-five percent of people in this country, voters, and that includes across the board. Generally, 50 to 75% of people, although it's more conservatives and Republicans, uh, are voting the way you would imagine them would. But maybe 60, 70% of people are in favor of liberalizing our behavior towards migrants, uh, immigrants. Uh, Maybe 60, 70, 80% of the people in this country are for more gun control of some kind, right? And so what you get is the clear picture of uh, very, very wealthy people, billionaires and, um, you know, lobbyists for huge corporations uh, bribing, literally bribing. I mean, the fact that they don't actually drive to somebody's house or meet them in a bathroom somewhere and hand over a suitcase full of $100 bills doesn't really mean anything. Bribe is a bribe. Uh, you know, one shell organization or one pack or another, money goes directly from these people and these corporations to the campaign, probably sometimes to the personal accounts, but <clears throat> certainly to the campaigns of politicians. And this is what you get. They vote, uh, you know, and they want to keep their jobs because they're more interested in power and control and making money themselves since half the people, half at least, People in Congress are millionaires. Half the people in Congress are millionaires. How is this different? I'm not going to go into a whole history lesson. How is this different than what it's been 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago? People who had more money uh, always wound up in control of the country. The country has always been controlled by people of uh, what passed in any given time for the upper class, for the owners of the country for the people who had the most money, had the most power. It's always been that way. It's that way generally in most places, right? There's hardly a place where it isn't that way, although there are some places perhaps maybe Sweden, I don't know, uh, Northern Europe, some countries maybe, maybe in France, maybe in England, that there's less money control over the government. But in this country, it's always been that way, but it's worse now than it's ever been, than I've ever seen it anyhow. And uh, the gun, this issue with guns is uh, all part of it. The NRA has, I don't know, what is it, 8 million members, 8 million members. And they contribute money to the NRA every year. So they probably have at least a billion dollars after they pay their expenses. They have several hundred million dollars. Maybe they have close to a billion dollars to spend on getting people elected, bribing people and striking fear into the hearts of spineless politicians. And this is the way it goes. Second Amendment. We don't need a Second Amendment. We are not 
carrying on a rebellion against King George anymore. It is not 200 or more years ago when having a gun meant that you had a musket or you had a pistol, which took forever to load after each shot. They didn't know what an automatic weapon was. Not every asshole and lunatic in, in, could walk in off the street to a gun store or um, find a gun to buy that could fire all these rounds in, in a short period of time. Um, special rounds that could tear you to pieces. I mean, uh, you know, musket, muskets and pistols. Here I am talking in gun talk now. This is descending to the level of it all. We don't, but the point is we don't need a Second Amendment anymore. We don't need a well-organized militia. And when you think about militias, what do you get in the United States? You don't get uh, patriotic Americans of all sorts revolting against an evil monarchy from Europe. No, you don't get that. You don't get that. And people further argue, I remember from, um, from my arguments with them on Sirius Satellite, was um, <clears throat> that the government itself, the, the Second Amendment was put in there to prevent... Um, tyrannies taking over. Yes, the American government is more and more tyrannical all the time. Look who's in charge. A guy is more like a half-assed Roman emperor than he is any elected official, right? The government for, and it's not just him. I mean, this has been going on for the last 50, 60 years, since really since Roosevelt, since World War II. Um, you know, in some cases it was very good, but in most cases very bad. This centralized government. And under Obama, all the money spent under Obama to spy on all of us. Obama spent billions of dollars, sent people to, you know, dozens and dozens of countries covertly, overtly. The government of the United States is now really closer to um, a corporate military dictatorship than it's ever been, clearly, than it's ever been. And money fuels it. Money from one place or another. Anyhow. Um, and there is one other, one other thing that blends into all of this stuff. These shootings, Trump, everything else that the way America is. And that's a kind of insane, out-of-control individualism and entitlement versus any kind of communal feeling. There's a couple of articles I... Uh, I don't have time for all of them. There's a couple of articles I found in the papers, uh, here's a, per, uh, a part of one of them. Uh, somebody noted there was a, a national poll in, or study noted that fertility rates are dropping in the United States. Fertility rates are dropping in the United States. It's happening in some, I think, some northern European countries too, or central European countries. And there are plenty of reasons for that. You could do 10 shows on that easy, right? But um, according to this article I'm quoting here, it says, sometimes it's the little thing that drive these trends, the trend being a drop in fertility rate. For example, across Americans across many ages and marital statuses are having less sex than they used to, right? Data, 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 data from the General Social Survey shows that the share of people 18 to 30 who have not had sex in the past year has risen to nearly 20% today from about 10% between 1990 and 2010. Well, the share having sex at least two times a month has fallen to about 65% from about 75%, which it was um, 10 to 20 years ago. Um, 
Now, one of the things uh, that they're speculating here, uh, and based on some of their interactions with the people they polled, says diminished face-to-face interaction. That's the key here. Diminished face-to-face interaction and possibly increased use of pornography may explain the fall in sex. And both of those trends may be explained by the rise in cell phone usage and other screen time. If you're staring at a cell phone or at a screen, you're not looking at a human face. Even if you look at a human face on the screen or on a cell phone, it is not the same thing. And it says here, in addition to all this, smartphone ownership. Uh, they keep calling it a smartphone until they finally realize it's a stupid phone, but that's for the future. Smartphone ownership rates have more than doubled for every age group in America since 2010, more than doubled in the last 10 years, meaning that almost all of us now carry a get-out-of-human-interaction-free card <laughs> in our pockets 24-7, right? Okay, so that's one thing, one thing. Uh, here's another. This is an editorial that was in um, the current issue, or actually last week's issue, of The Week magazine, which is a great magazine, W-E-E-K. Because if, uh, if you're um, anybody who wants to know even a little bit about what's going on on the other side of the great political and cultural divide, they put articles in there from all different places. But, and their editorial staff is also conservative and liberal. And so, so this is uh, written by somebody who is... Um, Basically, a more liberal editor, but um, <clears throat> anyhow, the Week magazine. It's a good way to figure out how the other side thinks and feels if you don't, you know, find yourself exposed to that kind of stuff. And uh, here's the article: As you squeeze down into, as you squeeze into a downsized airline coach, what's an editorial? Edit, uh, airline coach seat that could be snug for a nine-year-old. You find a peacock in the next chair, warily eyeing you, or a diapered duck or a pig without a diaper, or a large, growling dog. Absurd, I know, but entirely possible. Last year, Delta alone flew 250,000 service and emotional support animals brought by passengers who insisted they needed cats, turkeys, rodents, untrained dogs, and even a peacock to keep them calm at 30,000 feet. The peacock, thankfully, was rejected. Um, I've been on the bus plenty of times. You're on the subway sometimes in New York, but I got on a bus once, an incredibly crowded bus, hardly any room to move at all, no seats at all. And a woman, little fat woman, decides to get, nervous woman, decides to get on the bus, and she's got this um, pooch with her, right, who is more nervous than she is. <laughs> the dog, the dog is, um, is looking around, rolling its little, uh, its little dog-like eyes, and... Um, you know, it's twitching and it's looking around like somebody's going to step on it, and it looks like it's going to like uh, like it's going to fly away like a bird in a second. This is, and she and the, the driver said, "We don't have, we don't, we, we can't allow the dog on the on the bus." And she said, "This is my emotional support dog. This dog couldn't emotionally support itself, and this is what this little fat lady wanted to uh, to bring on." And she was arrogant. She argued and argued and argued with him, and finally he gave up. And everybody else in the bus is grumbling, you know, and saying, keep, get off the bus, you know, don't bring that dog on here. And she's saying, she starts crying. I have to have, I've got to get uptown and I have no other way of doing it. I can't afford a cab and I need, you know, a little Rodney here or whatever the dog's name was, you know, Spot, 
to get on the bus with me. And she got on the bus. And she got off after, after a stop or two. I don't know if that was her whole trip or whether the communal um, shaming of her actually worked and she got off the bus. Anyhow, continuing this editorial. Some of these animals have pooped in seats and aisles. Others have bitten passengers and other support animals. If there's a single phenomenon that captures the spirit of the age, it's this one. As David Leonhardt put it in the New York Times this week, <clears throat> the support animal is one more piece of proof that we live in a culture that fetishizes, fetishizes individual preference and expression over communal well-being. And there you have it. The credo of this culture is simple and shameless, shameless. I am the center of the universe. What I want is what I need, and who cares how what I need affects you? This worldview, unfortunately, is promoted and magnified by the technology that encapsulates people in a bubble of personal preferences. Thus it is that public places are filled with oblivious morons loudly running their mouths on smartphones or plowing down crowded sidewalks with their ears plugged and their downturned heads buried in texts. In fetishizing individual expression, social media has fouled the virtual public square with bile and menace. In national politics, there are no longer any commonly agreed upon facts, no basic standards of decency, just tribes fighting for dominance. If you disagree, you're an un-American loser, referring to this uh, astounding narcissistic asshole Trump. Uh, in his State of the Union uh, message uh, a couple of weeks ago, where he said afterwards, because the Democrats were sitting there and not applauding and looking stone-faced when he was saying this outrageous, hypocritical nonsense of his, um, uh, Trump, you know, being the ultimate narcissist, he said uh, that, which is, and to think about this is outrageous, talk about, you know, headed straight towards a dictatorship. He said because these Democrats didn't applaud his comments during the State of the Union address that they were un-American hinting perhaps that they were even traitors. Yes, right? This is what we've come to here. <clears throat> and one other article here. Um, now, this is something I came across about 20, 30 years ago. And I don't know if it still applies because the modern world changes so quickly that what was um, generally true or accepted in some culture 20 or 30 years ago is like ancient history now. Might as well be a 1,000 years ago. But uh, this is something from uh, an article on Wikipedia. It's about something called WA, W-A, WA. It's a Japanese cultural concept, and I'm sort of half quoting and half uh, editing this myself. Um, uh, it's a Japanese cultural concept usually translated into English as harmony. It implies a peaceful unity and conformity within a social group in which members prefer the continuation of a harmonious community over their personal interests. Uh, the character Wa is also a name for Japan or Japanese. Wa is considered integral to Japanese society and derives from traditional Japanese family values. Individuals who break the idea of Wa to further their own purposes are brought in line either overtly or covertly by reprimands from a superior or by their family or by their colleagues' tacit approval or by the society in general. And um, now, um, it's, I'll, I'll continue with this. Um, hierarchical structures exist in a Japanese society 
in Japanese society primarily to ensure the continuation of wa. Public disagreement with the party line is generally suppressed in the interest of preserving the communal harmony. Japanese businesses encourage wa in the workplace, with employees typically given a career for life in order to foster a strong association with their colleagues and the firm. Rewards and bonuses are usually given to groups rather than individuals, further enforcing the concept of group unity. Now, the upside of this, clearly, is harmony, which is what the word literally means, wa. The upside of this is harmony in social groups and in the society at large. Uh, It's a general code of accepted, mindful, and considerate behavior based on really do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the whole society is the other, right? It's like altruism. Uh, You would be ashamed in a place like this, in a culture like this, you'd be ashamed to disrupt the harmony of the group, of other people, as opposed, uh, for instance, to the other shamelessness of uh, current American culture, where individual wants and needs are all important, and the common need of the group is considered nothing but an irritant, a constraint on individual liberty. I want my, my little emotional support dog on the bus, and you can all go fuck yourself and step on the dog and have the dog nip you. I want my emotional support peacock. There really was one. Finally, an airline came to its senses and rejected it. I have to have my emotional support dog. I've seen a lot of these emotional support dogs. Some people really need them. I know there's a woman in my building who has a dog for emotional support. She really needs it. And the dog calms her down and helps her get through the day, helps her get through life itself, right? But there's a lot of people who just want their little doggies with them, their pets, and they bring them everywhere they go, imposing on everybody. Now, the obvious downside to this concept of wa or complete groupthink and speak and action, um, as when we've seen this in the 20th century, is, is like a blind obedience to authority, right, uh, and mindless conformity. And, and when you combine this with a concept of racial or cultural superiority, there is nothing that's not possible. I mean, the most horrible atrocities and the worst kind of behavior human beings can display. I mean, you talk about the Japanese uh, and combine it with also, uh, you know, with, uh, with religious, uh, you know, um, bigotry. And think of the European colonizers going all over the world, murdering people, stealing from people. I mean, really looting the whole world and raping and killing in the name of the Catholic Church or um, some other church. Um, uh, think of the way the Indians were treated here, like a genocide all by itself. And slavery, right? All of this justified very much so by, uh, by religious and racial superiority. And the way, the, speaking of the Japanese, the way they treated the Chinese and the Koreans in World War II um, is one of the great historical atrocities uh, that's ever been recorded for human beings. Rape, murder, torture of the worst kind, the way they treated political prisoners, same way. Um, the, the Japanese army and the soldiers that served in it uh, <clears throat> were uh, driven to societal insanity. I mean, they, they sacrificed their lives, kamikaze pilots crashing into, into their planes into U.S. ships. And they had these insane suicidal assaults on U.S. positions during World War II all because they were obeying their superiors and because everybody else was doing it. <clears throat> and because they would be shameful, shameful, that's the magic word here, to disobey it even in the slightest way. And the Japanese 
<clears throat> like the Chinese, consider themselves superior to other people. It's always this way. Since I'm part of a culture or an entire culture, considers itself better than other people. So that means you could do anything to them. Um, and the United States would never have, uh, you know, I mean, and the United States too, superior. And the United States would never have dropped the atomic bomb on a white Christian nation. Never, not in a million years. And if, the, if a white Christian nation, if the, if the Nazis, if the Germans, interchangeable during World War II, if they occupied um, a separate island or a series of islands like the Japanese, they still wouldn't have been bombed by the United States. It would have been considered outrageous. But to drop the bomb on a bunch of unchristian gooks, who gives a shit, right? They had it coming anyhow. I mean, you know, bad. Now, there's other reasons, I know, but still, that's all part of it. And uh, so in a place like this, uh, on the downside of this groupthink and group culture, uh, where everybody does the same thing because they have to or they're shamed into it, there is actually no room. There's no room for individual expression or thought. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is subordinated to the larger will of the collective. So then you get um, Nazis in the German army, special groups, units, that uh, came in behind the uh, soldiers in Russia and Eastern Europe. And uh, they had special units that were specifically created to murder uh, Jews, men, women, and children, infants, and anybody else that was considered uh, inferior or troublesome. This is what you get when you get the out-of-control groupthink. So uh, <clears throat> I think I'll have a little water. You mind? Is it okay if I have a little water? No, nobody minds. You can call up if you want. Tell me that you think it's intrusive. But I don't expect to ever get a call here. <laughs> I've given out the number, and although I know there are hundreds of thousands of people listening, people don't like to call up the radio anymore. <clears throat> so this whole thing, uh, this the, gun, the guns, really, you know, it's part of this insane uh, uh, individualism, which has been fostered in the United States. And originally, uh, it was a good thing that people came over here to be able to celebrate or to observe their own religion without being locked up or tortured or killed. They came over here because they wanted to exercise free speech without being locked up or tortured or killed or shamed by some larger society, right? Uh, either a monarch or a larger society in general. They came over from these European countries to do this. And um, to, uh, to be individuals, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a great noble ideal, especially as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, your life in danger, uh, pursuit of happiness, forget about it, only for the richest people in Europe. And uh, liberty, no. Liberty was a concept that uh, was considered... Um, anarchistic that was an anti-society concept anyhow the whole thing this rampant narcissism uh is part of this everybody can own a gun everybody's allowed to have one gun 200 guns everybody allows to shoot whatever they want wherever they want um it's the same part of this individualism which is as you can see uh becoming more and more and more uh, vicious and destructive all the time to the detriment of the larger group of people, to whole communities of people. 20 children killed by some lunatic who came from a family that said everybody was allowed to have guns and shoot guns um, in Massachusetts and um, Las Vegas and, I mean, you name it, and now in, um, in uh, Florida. Uh, and the, the whole idea of this narcissism versus basic consideration of other people 
is personified by Trump and his, you know, his gang, his greedy porkers that surround him and his family uh, of greedy pigs and his lackeys. Um, in his State of the Union message for Trump, when he talked about family values, it was enough to paralyze you with amazement at his massive lack of self-awareness. I mean, incredible. It would actually be better if he was just being hypocritical like most politicians. I mean, if this son of a bitch Trump, if he knew how awful he sounded but thought he could get away with saying it anyway, it would be better than his actual ignorance, his pathological narcissism. If you notice that his wife, who goes, I mean, since she's bought and sold, right? His wife basically works for him. She's like a high-class prostitute. And if, if she, she was uh, doing whatever she was supposed to do, and she could see she hates it, though. I mean, even she, even though there's a, a contract between the two of them, uh, un- either unwritten or written, uh, where, you know, basically she's going to have access to billions of dollars and the best in the world, the best in life, uh, best material things in life. And she just basically has to do what he says and look good. That's her basic job. Um, even she could not stand up. She sat there uh, when he talked about family. Trump talking about family values. At least his wife had the courage and the sense to sit down and not applaud. Trump is like the very opposite. He's the very opposite of this concept of wah, of the good part of this concept of wah. He is only for himself all the time. The man has no shame. He has no shame. He's shameless. There's this, uh, you have to go back a ways here or be interested in American history, right? But you definitely have to be <clears throat> maybe even like an old guy like me or an old gal. I hate that word, gal. An old man or a woman. There's a, a really famous, speaking of being shameless, there's a famous moment in American history back in the 50s, which is caught on film, that has to do with another crazy, destructive narcissist, uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy. And it was a Senate subcommittee hearing. Uh, McCarthy had decided there were communists in the army. He didn't know any, He didn't know if there were communists in the army. He was drunk more than half the time. He didn't know if there were communists in the army. It was a way of getting... Uh, recognition like Trump. He wanted everybody to pay attention to him all the time and to exercise power in some sort of blunt way that he didn't even understand what he was doing. Um, and um, yeah, McCarthy was in this uh, subcommittee and they, were, they, were, they claimed that the army was full of communists. The army! <laughs> the army was full of communists, right? Whatever was, and then he had an instinct like Trump, this guy McCarthy, for whatever, whatever was the most outrageous thing. He could always figure it out. He knew what it was, and he would go after it, right, and get himself as much attention and power as possible. And so in this film, you see McCarthy's browbeating a witness uh, who has been called about uh, communists in the army, and he's accusing him of being an anti-American. He's interrupting him. He's drowning out every attempt that the witness made to respond and defend himself. And this witness was represented by a lawyer named Joseph Welch, who was one of the first people to really stand up against McCarthy. Because McCarthy scared everybody. And this is the same, this is again, I mean, these comparisons here are very uh, similar. Uh, people called it McCarthyism. This whole um, ignorant but very dangerous uh, authoritative um, witch-burning of people, of going after people. In this case, it was always communist. That was the big thing. I mean, after World War II, when we had been uh, for matters of um, practicality, allies of the Russians fighting the Nazis. Um, uh, then after World War II, uh, the Americans had always been anti, uh, uh, extremely anti-communist. I mean, the Americans being 
perhaps the, along with some other European countries like, the, like England. But Americans, especially more than any other country, being so capitalistic, so capitalistic, so into money and uh, greed and uh, piling up money and uh, lack of equality for all the stuff in the Constitution, the whole idea of, um, <clears throat> of equality was never really an American concept. I mean, the fact that there's, um, you know, uh, everybody gets to vote equally, everybody gets to, uh, to participate in government equally, that's an ideal. It was, never, it was never really one of the foundational American beliefs. The belief is um, that uh, either God or your natural talents or, or some other thing made you better than other people, and by, by exercising your individual rights to amass as much money and power as possible, you could rise above other people. That was America. So it was capitalism, pure and simple. And so Americans always hated communism from the very beginning. I mean, especially communist Russia. And communist Russia, you know, uh, was never communist Russia. It was just a dictatorship which had replaced the czar. Um, so it was always the same thing. And Russia has never had anything resembling uh, communism, to say the very least, or socialism even. I mean, except the fact that uh, they did raise the standard of everybody's living, those are the people that they didn't kill off, and everybody got health care and education and housing. So that's something, right? But uh, really, if you look at Putin, he's nothing but a czar, just the same as any other czar ever was. Uh, so uh, th- that place is never—democracy has never really taken root in Russia, even a little bit. Anyhow, so McCarthyism, in a way, people call it McCarthyism, this, this narcissistic, ignorant— but destructive government power. And it's just like Trump. And I've even heard the word Trumpism now. What? Trumpism. Uh, What is the ism? It's a perfect storm of ignorance, destructiveness, selfishness, and blind power, the blind exercise of power. So this guy Welch, anyhow, who was sitting there, he was the chief counsel for the United States Army uh, when they were investigating, uh, when McCarthy was investigating the Army, that it was, you know, ridden with communists, (laughs) of all places, right? At a certain point, where McCarthy's bullying was becoming unbearable, uh, Welch famously asked McCarthy, uh, at long last, have you no sense of decency? And it just, the whole thing turned after that. The whole thing turned after that. Uh, And it was a spark, and it began a very swift decline for this guy, McCarthy, because everybody saw through it. Everybody was able to see that he had gone too far, that he was ignorant, He was vicious and he was violent. Can everybody see that? Can everybody see that with Trump? Not as clearly. And there are reasons for that. Because the whole country, not the whole country, but tens of millions of people in this country think that everything, everything, their lives, the government, their jobs, their life on the street, everything they do and see that comes in through their five senses is a television show. People do not know the difference between television and reality. Even calling a television show a reality show blurs the lines uh, hopelessly, right? So this guy says, have you no sense of decency? In other words, uh, McCarthy was shameless. He had no shame. It's interchangeable, right? Decency is the opposite of indecency, shamelessness. This Japanese concept and practice of wa it's like altruism, like I said before. It expand, like it's altruism expanded into daily common behavior. It's a way of acting in society, a concern for other people, 
the community in general. But shame, right? Shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. Remember hearing that when you were a kid? Do people say that much anymore? I think they do sometimes in, in public, right? But uh, people, they used to hear that all the time when you were growing up in the 50s. You should be ashamed of yourself. Shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. McCarthy and Trump, right? Because Trump is always, Trump is always tweeting that somebody he doesn't like should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> That's typical, right? Uh, man, you can bet your disappearing Social Security check that Trump was shamed big time as a kid. And later in military boarding school, probably, too. I mean, that's what they do. The shame is being one of the great tools. It's always been one of the great tools of the Army to, uh, to keep individuals in line and make them do what everybody else is supposed to do and follow orders. And you know Trump has suffered from tremendous shame. He wouldn't be acting this way otherwise. And shaming, I should say. And shaming was a way back in the day and uh, hasn't disappeared. Shaming was a way, is still a way, of controlling children. A parent or a teacher or authority could ruin a kid's life by shaming them, especially in front of other kids. <clears throat> Japanese culture was based on shaming, but it was more covert. <clears throat> but in the 50s, it was a big deal here in this country. You should be ashamed of yourself. People, Parents said this to kids uh, all the time. The Catholic Church um, functioned and functions in many places still entirely on shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's a sin. Everything is a sin, Right. Uh, you know, other religions, too. But basically, the Catholic Church was uh, was uh, really this used this more than anything else. Um, shame and shaming has not disappeared. It's in the here and now. Like, for instance, in my neighborhood, I see two versions of shaming, often in public, uh, as if the parent was trying to get people on the street to witness this, which makes it even more shameful. When you shame a kid in public, it makes it even worse, right? If you've been a victim of that, you know. The upper middle class parents where I live, they'll say things like uh, to their kid, you know, Joshy, that makes mommy feel bad. You don't want mommy to feel bad, do you? That was very bad of you to do that in public, right on the bus, on the street. Or stop it. Everybody is looking at you. So that's that's the upper middle class people in my neighborhood. They're, they're doing it all the time. And on the street, um, there are some people, almost always young women from the city shelters on Broadway and they're screaming at their kids on the street. Sometimes they're smacking them, hitting them, jerking their arms, shaking them right on the street in front of everybody. Shit, what did I say? Stop crying, right? I mean, mortifying for a kid. I mean, you, you could say something or you could even do something, but you would certainly be screamed at, cursed at, probably threatened, and maybe even you would be attacked yourself, right? So you walk on and let some poor kid get squashed. Life in a city. I mean, and you feel bad about yourself, but you can't be correcting every crazy parent on the street. So much the worse for these poor kids. I mean, your heart bleeds for them, right? But uh, you have to sort of watch out for yourself once in a while, and um, you're making a choice, though, and you don't feel good about it. I mean, I had plenty of shaming from my mother. She used shit all the time. And all it did in me was provoke fear and hatred of her, right? And uh, unfortunately, a lifelong streak of self-loathing. And I was told that I should, what I was doing was shameful or I should be ashamed of myself five times a day when I was growing up. Uh, my kids, I never said that to them because I guess it happened to me and because I saw how awful it was. I never, I never, I never made them look bad in public, never embarrassed them, and I never told them they were bad. I remember uh, <coughs> once a friend of mine and I were eating in a health food store uh, back in Park Slope where I lived for a long time in Brooklyn. 
and two people and their four-year-old son at the next table, right? And uh, the mother was going on and on in this, like, passive-aggressive behavior modification voice, which drives me nuts. Oh, you know, if you would just eat your vegetables, you know, then I won't cut your head off, you know? So, and she, she's, she's, she's just dumping on this kid. Everything this poor kid was doing was wrong. Well, four-year-old kid, right? And the idiot father just sat there wordless, didn't say a word, just chewing on his kale or whatever it was. Um, she would say, you know, finish your vegetables, wipe your mouth. It's dirty. Your hands are all smeared with something, Joshy. Don't use your spoon. Use your fork. Later, if you've been a good boy, maybe you can watch television. Mommy will let you watch television. So my friend, who is uh, very blunt, <laughs> he leans over to, next to, to the table next to me. He says to her, why don't you just shoot him and get it over with? <laughs> and this woman was scandalized, of course, right? She's outraged that somebody was saying anything about her horrible behavior. And this is how it always goes. You know, this is how it always goes. If you say anything to shame, to shameless people, and if you say anything to them, you become the villain, right? Uh, you become the bad one, interfering with a parent and their child. How dare you, right? How dare you? Well, religious institutions, priests, nuns, ministers, rabbis, uh, communities or neighborhoods, they used to, they, these were the places that reigned in this kind of out-of-control individualism, right? It... Uh, uh, but this socialization from the top down, this kind of uh, shaming, or even if it's not so bad, even if it's trying to just sort of teach people what's right and bring them up a certain way, this stuff has sort of disappeared. Now, why has it disappeared? Well, because, as I said, you know, I mean, if, you, if you've experienced this, you know, it was often pernicious and smothering, this awful shame, shame, shaming that went on. It destroyed people's spirits, and it created... Oh, Speaking of uh, sociopaths and psychopaths, which are running loose all over, who are running loose all over the country shooting people, um, uh, the shaming became shameful in itself, which was a good thing in society, right? So you don't see so much of it. But what's taken up the slack? What replaces um, a way of socializing people so that they don't do everything they want all the time? Uh, maybe in a small community is still this way in America, some version of wah. But in big cities in New York, uh, where there is probably no ethnic or religious or class uniformity, hardly at all, beyond the block level, it seems like everybody does just what they want all the time. There's no rules at all. And no one seems to feel any shame about it. On the bus, on the subway, teenage kids, people of any age, inevitably talking or texting on their fucking phones, just sit there. And if you're old or disabled or you're a little kid who can't stand up or a pregnant woman, you could just stand there or fall down and drop dead. Who cares, right? There's a seat. And there's a seat there. No, there's not a seat. Well, you can find your own seat or you can die. Either one. I'm busy texting. On the street, people allow their dogs to piss and shit anywhere they like. They don't bother to take them to the curb. On flower beds, on the base of trees, on anything they can piss on, on garbage bags waiting to be picked up by the sanitation guys. Right? And while their dog is fouling the street or destroying some flowers or trees, guess what their idiot owners are doing? Mostly talking or texting, staring at this little screen. Drivers in the city routinely go through lights. They double and triple park. They block other cars. Bicycle riders almost always go through red lights. Um, delivery guys drive the wrong way on bike paths, almost blindsiding people all the time. Probably a couple of thousand times a day in the city, people suffer near misses from bikers and drivers. And pedestrians also, they cross in front of the light, they slow down traffic, they stop traffic, people get into accidents trying to avoid them. And um, 
uh, buildings are being knocked down everywhere, new ones go up, and whole portions of streets are unusable. The whole city, everywhere, right? Sidewalks are blocked, and you can take your chances in the street. If you're going to run over, so what? There's always somebody else to take your place. I mean, there's a lot. Of, there's 8 million people in New York City. But what's more important is the latest $50 million, uh, you know, an apartment condominium that's going up. I mean, things are really off the deep end. And the government, from the federal to the state to the city level, is more corrupt and self-serving than it has ever been. And people take their cue from observing what their leaders do. If everyone is breaking the rules, if everyone is out for themselves, not just Trump, but the Clintons, not just the Republicans, but the Democrats, then why, would you, why should you be a sap and not cheat or lie or steal like they do? I mean, um, I remember right in the middle of the Watergate investigations and all these revelations coming, about, coming out about <clears throat> how everybody, uh, everybody was being indicted, everybody was a criminal. I mean, Nixon and everybody around him, all the people he appointed, secretaries of this and that, uh, were all being indicted and revealed to be the worst kinds of criminals, liars, thieves, you know, um, people who were ripping up the Constitution. And I remember I was working in the probation department, and it was uh, summer of 1974, and I was interviewing a pimp, a guy named Tyrone Green, and he had the real pimp outfit on. He was... He had a flashy suit. He had uh, rings on his fingers. He had a snappy hat, you know, the feather in the hat, the whole thing. And I remember this guy especially for a couple of reasons. First of all, he had the same birthday I did. And it turned out he was the last person I ever handled as a probation officer. So for those two reasons, I remember him. And one of the things that we were required to ask uh, what were called offenders in the probation department is if they had remorse for what they did. And um, that's as if they even admitted they did it in the first place. So here we are, the half the administration and Nixon, all these people are being indicted for high crimes. And I say to this guy, um, <clears throat> Mr. Green, do you feel any remorse for what you did? <laughs> and I know how lame that sounds, right? What a stupid thing to be asking these people. And this guy leans toward me across the desk. And like I say, it's the, it was the last day I ever worked there. And he says, shit, no. Uh, why should I feel remorse, he says, for living, for making my living on the street when everybody in the government is a worse crook than I'll ever be? And I didn't have a word to say to him. Not a word to say to him. Folded up the file, said, you can go now. Uh, went to my boss and said, that's it. I'm retiring today. You know? Well, I don't know. So is there any, is there any answer to all this narcissism and public hysteria? You know, is there any answer to all this uh, crazy out-of-control individualism where everybody is allowed to do anything they want and say anything they want about anybody else and ruin their lives? Uh, maybe it's the same answer as it always was. With luck, uh, some leader shows up. Somebody you're able to place uh, at least a little confidence and trust in. Have we had that for a long time? I don't think so. And more generally and more substantially, the current wave of mindless meanness results in so much destruction and ruin little by little by little. And this has happened before. Things get so bad, in other words, that small groups of people, which finally end up to big groups of people, realize that something has to change. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's not always that way, clearly. I mean, sometimes when I'm on the street or on the bus, I help somebody who's worse off than myself, and that's not too many people these days, but I will open the door for somebody if they can't pull the door open, if it's too hard to pull open. I see people do the right thing. They do. They stop at the light. They don't, they don't ride over you with their bicycles. They don't talk at the top of their lungs on their phone and get up and the people get up and give people seats. They still do that. Or they open the door for someone, like I say, or they curb their dog. So it's this combination of once-in-a-lifetime inspirational leader 
I mean, somebody like Martin Luther King, we can only pray for that. And from the ground up, you know, everyday interactions between people somehow shift back to some semblance of common consideration and uh, decency. Maybe if we're all very lucky and God wakes up and does his or her job, maybe one day all the cell phone towers in the country will stop functioning, right? Now, there's something really horrible. I mean, that's just too horrible to even listen to, right? But imagine, suddenly, no calls, no texts, no apps, nothing. Just the world and the people in it. Would that be the end of the world? I don't know. The world, imperfect as it was, functioned perfectly well before all this. And it functioned perfectly well. Not perfectly well, but it functioned. People got married. They had kids. They had jobs. They did art. They, uh, they, they were good to people. They were bad to people. Life went on, right? There would be a tremendous period of adjustment. Parents would actually have to pay attention to their children and their husbands and their wives. Joggers and bikers and, and, and dog walkers and bus and subway riders would actually have to learn all over again the common rules of civility that apply when you become aware that there are other humans occupying the same space as you. So, I, you know, really, would anything be lost if all the cell phones suddenly shut down and didn't work? Would the human race suffer any irretrievable damage if we suddenly had to wait more than one minute to communicate with someone else or maybe find a restaurant or a store on the nearest subway stop the old-fashioned way by looking at a sign or asking for directions? The bottom line, the naked truth, is that people would be face-to-face with other people. And what a truly brave new world that would be. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls the bell tolls for thee. Yes, that's right. The bell tolls for thee. But the tweet does not, and the text does not. But the real bell, which is ringing all the time, is tolling for all of us. Are we ever going to wake up and understand that before we all disappear? I have no idea. This has been, and may actually continue to be, Mike Fader. And uh, I'm here every Friday on prn.fm live at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And, of course, we're on, you're probably going to listen to this on a podcast. So get in touch if you want to say anything. I'm always willing to hear, and I will probably be responding to you. That's it for this week. Well, it's all.
Somewhere down the road when somebody 